It's Monday, and that so happens to be the day that I like to talk about monsters. Hello, everybody. I am Jeff Arbuckle, and this is Monster Mondays, presented to you by Film Seizure. Well, this week, it's finally time to talk about 1962's King Kong versus Godzilla. And the reason why I'm talking about it is uh, because, fingers crossed, in just a few weeks, the 2021 version of Godzilla versus Kong will be out uh, not only in theaters, but I hopefully on HBO Max as well. Now, I say hopefully and fingers crossed and all that because just to pull back the curtain a little bit on this uh, show and the behind the scenes action here that is uh, me presenting to you this show, uh, I record these well in advance uh, for various reasons, but uh, it just so happens that right now it's January. And uh, as far as I know, um, I will be seeing Godzilla vs. Kong one way or another, be it through HBO, or uh, somehow, some way, I end up getting vaccinated so I can go back to the theaters. Uh, but either which way, it seems like we're still on track to see these two titans of giant monster film land filmdom, whatever you want to call it, uh, will be going back at it and and. Uh, kind of going to blows over whatever um so with that said i wanted to make sure this month uh, kind of highlights some stuff that will be surrounding all of these uh or particularly surrounding all of the big happenings in the world of toho and godzilla and king kong uh so this week i'm going to talk about 1962's king kong versus godzilla and then next week i've got another toho movie before uh going into kong skull island and then eventually godzilla versus kong and then rebirth of mothra 2 get back to that series so may is going to be devoted to those kooky crazy kaiju from japan and um hopefully uh everything works out and we don't have to call an audible when uh it's about damn time that we see the new godzilla versus kong but all right so let's get back on track here King Kong vs. Godzilla, 1962 was when it was released to Japan, 1963 released here in America after an American version was uh, edited from the Japanese movie that was shipped over to us. This is the third film in the Godzilla series. It's the first of the 60s as well as the first one made in color. Uh, the two previous movies of course godzilla king of the monsters or gojira as well as godzilla raids again both of those were of course shot in black and white they were released uh eight and seven years prior uh if you were living in japan at the time um but uh, this is also the second godzilla movie to be directed by ishiro honda now honda uh he was only unavailable for Godzilla Raids again just because he was wanting to work on a different movie and they kind of rushed Godzilla Raids again into production if you want to know more about that I've covered that uh, on this show previously just search for that and you'll find it um, however uh, he was still working with kaiju movies he did the Mysterians which is next week's movie uh, he did Rodan he did Mothra all of these movies prior to uh, or uh, in between, I should say, Go um, Gojira and King Kong versus Godzilla. Um, he also worked on some comedies 
in between working on kaiju movies and he used a um a, a kind of a, a traditional japanese stand-up technique that is called uh, manzai which um, is not uniquely japan except for it's unique to their style of comedy uh, particularly in the 50s and um, and what what they would do you know from the mid-century um, honestly probably still to this day but manzai is essentially um, the good old classic style of having a funny man and a straight man um, and you, you you know you have that kind of straight straight man and his foil sort of idea and that's kind of at play in this um, he really kind of wanted to lighten up the mood of these movies the the previous kaiju movies he made were a little bit more serious and he wanted to kind of lighten that tone um so he was kind of interjecting that into uh into this story which oddly enough was not his intent for the for the monsters the characters of king kong and godzilla to also have these kind of light-hearted personalities uh that kind of happened by accident i've got more to say about that later in the episode but um that also kind of came along this was kind of the beginning of godzilla's big time rise to stardom the 60s would prove to be an exceptional decade for uh godzilla and and would really make him the the superstar that we know him today um but toho on the other hand was um celebrating its 30th anniversary um in 1962 um they had a huge slate of very very popular and very big time movies that they were throwing a lot into one of those movies was uh, akira kurosawa's um sanjuro was basically probably the headlining movie of that year for them but they were able to uh, take advantage of this big celebration and this big desire to have these big time movies and secured the rights uh to include king kong in one of their monster movies however there's a little bit of controversy around this um and there's a lot of really interesting kind of behind the scenes stuff that was going on you see uh king kong was kind of slated to return to theaters anyway at least over here willis o'brien had been uh kind of working on sketches ideas um he was working with universal to make a movie that would essentially be king kong versus frankenstein um whereas a giant version of frankenstein's monster would battle king kong um what ended up happening was was that universal didn't have the rights to the character of frankenstein they only had the rights to the image of frankenstein from their old uh from their older movies um so it 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 went through various iterations um where king kong would return to to fight uh, some sort of a monster well there was an american producer by the name of john beck who behind the backs of uh willis o'brien and marion c cooper who of course marion of course cooper was uh you know the the big producer of the 30s king kong as well as mighty joe young um well beck had kind of worked behind their backs 
and sold the rights to this King Kong movie idea to Toho. And this infuriated Willis O'Brien and Cooper. Uh, in fact, Cooper would um, you know, would really try to basically sue everybody around this. Um, he tried to um, sue um, Toho. He tried to sue Universal. He even tried to sue John Beck to, to stop the production or stop the release of this movie. Um, basically, he, he would say that he had the sole ownership of the King Kong character, which is not exactly true because Willis O'Brien has a part of that too, as King Kong's quote unquote creator. But um, ultimately the lawsuit didn't go anywhere um, and it didn't stop Toho from being able to make this movie. What's kind of funny is, is that this is not the only time King Kong has been in litigation um, about who owns the, the character, who owns the rights. In fact, uh, I think the 1976 version of King Kong had some uh, legal issues uh, between Paramount and um, I think Universal. But Universal definitely, by the end of the 70s, uh, was in a huge lawsuit um, at the end of the 70s into the 80s, I think, was in a huge lawsuit with uh, Nintendo over their character of Donkey Kong. Um, and they were claiming that they owned the rights to King Kong, which uh, they showed up to court. Uh, Nintendo was feeling confident, but they were a small company at that time. And they stood up to Universal instead of backing down. And it was a good thing they did because when Universal showed up in court, uh, Pretty much it was immediately revealed that, no, Universal doesn't own any right to King Kong. So King Kong has been a very contentious, uh, a legal contention uh, type of situation for a very, very long time. Um, it was one thing that really kind of put Nintendo on the map because they stood up to a big Hollywood studio and won. And um, it from, th from that, uh, Nintendo had a very popular character in King Kong. Um, so I'm kind of rambling about all these, or Donkey Kong, I should say. Uh, I'm rambling on about all of these other uh, things that are not about King Kong versus Godzilla, but let's get into that movie. Um, it's, it's kind of an interesting movie because the American version is the only version that we have access to here in the States. Um, I watched the Criterion collection of this. Uh, I have all of the... Showa era um, Godzilla movies in the Criterion Collection, and um, almost pretty much all of those that there is a Japanese version, it is either included on a disc or it is the only version you can watch uh, in that collection. And King Kong versus Godzilla does not have that option, um, and it's really peculiar because you can really tell what was produced by John Beck for the American audience. It opens with this reporter who is a UN reporter. And it almost feels like, you know, like those kind of, um, you know, like the armed forces radio type of stuff where it's kind of like beamed out to all over the world, but it is specifically UN based. And, uh, this guy is talking about, um, 
earthquakes that are happening, these crumbling uh, icebergs and uh, that come from this glacier that's heading towards Japan. Um, he's also talking about um, this uh, this red berry that's found on a particular island um, called Faroe Island that. Um, uh, also, uh, apparently, is home to a very strange giant creature that they consider a god. Um, and he's just kind of setting up the movie for us. We then meet uh, Mr. Taco, who is the head of um, Pacific Pharmaceuticals. And he's really frustrated with uh, the ratings of the shows that his company sponsor. TV was a massive, massive thing in Japan at the time. So it was really, really important for businesses to sponsor uh, these TV shows because it was able to uh, get their product in front of the uh, of the viewers. And it was a very, very big deal in Japan. And in fact, uh, Ishiro Honda wanted to kind of poke a little bit of fun about how TV has kind of taken over everybody's lives. Um, it's... it's uh, Mr. Taco is very, very uh, adamant that they need something to um, energize their sales and energize the ratings of the shows that they sponsor. So he wants two of his guys uh, named Asamu and um, uh, Kinsaburo to go out to Faroe Island to bring back the monster that they're hearing about on the news. Meanwhile, a UN sub goes out to investigate the icebergs and when they get stuck in the icebergs, the iceberg uh, begins to break up and that reveals Godzilla. And Godzilla immediately blows up the sub and then uh, wrecks an Arctic uh, UN base. This is the same iceberg or icy structure that he was supposedly trapped in in the previous movie, uh, which was Godzilla Raids Again. So, you know, there is some continuity here with the previous Godzilla movies, which is also kind of nice. Well, Mr. Taco gets really, really frustrated about hearing about all this Godzilla stuff. So he really wants his guys to uh, find this monster so that he has his own monster to attract eyeballs and, and uh, attract attention. So uh, his two guys do arrive on, on uh, Pharaoh um, as Godzilla kind of continues his rampage towards uh, Japan. And um, that night that... Uh, that um, Osamu and Kinsaburo arrive on Faroe Island, uh, a giant octopus attacks the villagers, but King Kong comes along and fights off the octopus. But um, King Kong um, ends up uh, drinking a bunch of like this juice that's made by these red berries that uh, the guy at the beginning of the movie was talking about. It's something that Pacific Pharmaceuticals also wants possession of um, and what it ends up doing is it kind of makes him drunk and pass out which at that point allows for Pacific Pharmaceuticals to nab King Kong to take him back to Japan however because of the whole Godzilla problem they can't bring King Kong in um, and so Godzilla is on the mainland of Japan uh, messing stuff up King Kong is asleep on this raft that are that as they try to figure out what to do with him, uh, he begins to wake up and he ends up escaping and almost immediately comes face to face with Godzilla. Well, because Godzilla has this uh, that atomic breath deal, it causes 
King Kong to uh, essentially retreat very quickly. And he looks kind of dejected that he can't just go up and beat up this thing. He's no longer the, the king of his, of his domain anymore, right? He's, he's moved off of his island, off of his, of his home base. Well, so now Japan has two monsters <laughs> rampaging through. Uh, Godzilla, who is making his way towards... Um, Tokyo and King Kong who's just kind of out there and this is where it's very important to understand something that had never really been discussed before with either of these characters uh, Japan's uh, defense people decide to erect a electrical high-tension wire to surround Tokyo to keep Godzilla out Godzilla apparently is not a fan of electricity uh, meanwhile, the problem with that is, though, is that apparently uh, King Kong is strengthened by uh, by electricity. So when King Kong basically gets hopped up on electricity and starts messing around in, in Tokyo, they have to use the, the red berry juice stuff to put him to sleep again. And then they use helicopters and helium balloons to take king kong to wherever godzilla is and then just let the two duke it out uh you got two giant monsters let them kill each other basically um and this fight is uh actually pretty iconic in the godzilla uh universe if you will um in this it basically turns into a wrestling match and it makes sense because professional wrestling was very very popular in japan uh particularly on tv so Basically, Ishiro Honda is making a movie that says, hey, you know what? I can do better than televised wrestling. I'll give you a movie of the two most famous monsters basically duking it out in living color, no less. Um, and that's really how this turns out. Like uh, King Kong uh, is able to grab Godzilla by his uh, tail and kind of whip him around and throw him. Um you know, Godzilla knocks King Kong into rocks that knocks him out. Um, at one point, um, God, King Kong grabs a tree and is shoving it down uh, Godzilla's throat. Um, it's a knockdown, dragout fight, and and in the in just when you think Godzilla's got the upper hand, King Kong gets struck by lightning, which then essentially gives him the upper hand. But they fall into the ocean. Godzilla is not seen. But we do find out that King Kong is basically swimming back to Faroe Island. What's interesting about that is that for about 30 years, there was this misconception of there being two different endings to this movie. That in Japan, there was uh, an ending that indicated that, that um, Godzilla won. And in the United States, the uh, ending showed that King Kong won because he was the one who basically emerged from the ocean and you can see him swimming off into the sunset um but the thing is is th that's bullshit um the truth is is that this is the end of the movie godzilla just retreats king kong retreats it's a draw and that's it uh nobody wins um because they both had their own separate attacks you know like uh king kong when he got charged up with uh <laughs> with electricity he was super strong but godzilla had 
the uh, the tail that he could use to whip, and he also had the atomic breath that he can use from afar. So, um, you know, there was really no way to pick a winner in this, and certainly Japan wasn't gonna um, wasn't going to have their guy lose outright and uh so there's no reason for there to be two different endings it's just it ended in a drop uh, and that's it um also the whole thing about uh king kong being um juiced up by electricity that almost feels like that that is a remnant of the original god's uh king kong versus frankenstein movie that was planned um however there was also some idea or some consideration of having a godzilla versus a frankenstein monster um either which way the the idea of electricity supercharging a character um seems to almost be kind of left from the the leftover remnants of this idea of this um of this frankenstein monster movie that they wanted to do all right, so let's get into my three likes for uh, King Kong versus Godzilla, the 1962 version. Uh, first and foremost, the tone. Um, I kind of uh, touched upon this earlier. This is um, really the tone setter for the rest of the original era Godzilla movies. It's um, it's a lot more lighthearted. There is some kind of human um stuff going on this movie has one of the longer uh stretches of just monster on monster fighting even though it does cut back to humans every now and then uh but this is really kind of a tone setter and it's a very light-hearted movie and it's and you can really tell that there was an effort to uh, really make this accessible to all ages um there's plenty of action with godzilla and king kong for kids to get excited about there was enough for the parents of those kids to kind of get into with the human side of it. Um, there's a lot of kind of um, just much more lighthearted in nature. And that kind of goes right into my second like. Um, this is not just the, the tone setter for the rest of the Showa era Godzilla movies, but when, when most people who grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s think about Godzilla, um, and they think about those movies that they watched on uh, cable or they watched it on the local. For me, it was it was Channel 4 locally on Saturday afternoons when I was a real little kid in the 80s. Um, but this is the this is the beginning of the very Godzilla that I immediately think about as good as the first Godzilla movie is. Um, and as much as the second Godzilla movie tried to kind of um live up to that first one uh really the the idea of of giving the monsters these kind of human attributes and personalities is something that will remain for the remainder of this original series until 1975 um godzilla seems to almost have a personality king kong has a personality like i said when king kong retreats the first time he looks dejected uh when uh godzilla wins or does something that he's proud of he kind of claps and he celebrates these are the this is the very very beginning of that era uh, or of that idea of what most people of a certain age are going to think of when it when they think of godzilla the more recent Godzilla is what the younger people are going to be thinking about now, but this is the exact version of Godzilla that I think of 
and it starts right here and for the and this is really the beginning of the turn towards the light if you will and godzilla starts becoming you know it's it's just a couple of years from here that he is a hero and not a villain character anymore in this he's still a a, a danger a threat um and in a way i think you can almost directly tie that to um the japanese uh perception of the americans if you think about godzilla being something that was created from the devastation that we that we brought to them at the end of world war ii with the nuclear bomb and how um something as great as nuclear energy could be perverted into a a, a weapon that then they then made the uh, allegory with godzilla um if you take that and you say okay well if godzilla might be the representation of the destruction that the americans brought well you know 10 15 years later 20 years later by the end of this run uh, of these movies it's a different relationship that the united states and, and japan has and it it is represented that way by godzilla as well so it's uh, you know you really kind of start seeing the beginning of this kinder gentler heroic godzilla and that's my favorite godzilla um i know maybe not for everybody but that is for me third um and this is something that i don't normally or i wouldn't normally talk about in these types of movies but i think this gives me a perfect opportunity to talk about it but there's a particular actress in this movie who uh, is named uh, mai hama and hama was uh, not just in this uh, King Kong versus Godzilla movie, but in 1967 she was also in King Kong Escapes, which was the other Toho King Kong movie. Uh, but she was also in 1967 uh, the role of Kissy Suzuki in the James Bond film You Only Live Twice. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up uh, because I always considered the idea of if you were a young, uh, you know, or or you know, in your early 20s or mid 20s or even late 20s, if you got a role in one of Toho's Godzilla movies, it was almost like getting, um, it was almost like somebody in the West becoming a Bond girl. And the reason why I say that is, is that every single Godzilla movie, doesn't matter what era, doesn't matter which movie it is, there is an attractive, young, and very pleasant japanese woman in the cast um she's oftentimes one of the characters girlfriends or wives or maybe it's one of the little kids mothers which was often more seen in the gamera movies but the point is is that they almost always fit a certain um attractive but not sexy kind of uh, thing that is you know somebody that's like wow she's really pretty and you just kind of like the you, it's just a very calming uh <laughs> um you know uh, look about them and it, it you know they're just attractive enough to where you have to assume that there is a search going on much the same as what the bond producers used to go on for their searches for bond girls and for hama to be in this and also later to be a bond girl it's kind of a perfect symmetry and it was just it was one of those situations where i always think that when i think about the actresses that are in each of the godzilla movies they're just attractive enough to make you think that 
there was enough of a search to go on to make this almost like getting the role of a Bond girl. Um, and, you know, it's just one of those things I've always thought about with this series. And this was the perfect opportunity to talk about it. But that will be my third like for this movie. This is one of the better Godzilla movies, period. Um, it's fun. It's exciting. You get two really recognizable characters. There's a lot of things to like about it. It's an enjoyable watch. It's um, You get a lot of monster action in this, which is not always common with the Godzilla movies over the years. But um, it is something that... Um, it's just a really fun movie and I'm glad that finally these two are, are going to eventually get back together in a brand new movie. So that wraps up this week's monster Mondays. Now don't forget to check out new episodes of film seizure every Wednesday and a new installment of monster Mondays each Monday on FilmSeizure.com, as well as places where fine podcasts are found like SoundCloud, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify. We're even on uh, audible, which you can get through Amazon. Additionally, you can hop on over to Facebook and Twitter and follow us by just searching for Film Seizure. And while you're at it, you can head over to my website, www.bmovieenema.com, and you can read new text articles each and every Friday about a B-movie or a bad movie in general. Um, you can also follow B-movie Enema on Facebook and Twitter by searching for just that, B-movie Enema. And hey, while you're at it, Go on over to YouTube and follow the B-Movie Enema channel where you can find episodes of my movie hosting show and uh, get ready for season two of B-Movie Enema, the series, starting this September. So until next week, everybody, stay spooky. Stay spooky.